in terms of your your personal journey into education, sure. You know what what inspired you to become a teacher? Yeah, so um, my story is kind of an unusual one. I was working in the music industry in uh, Los Angeles, and I was doing tour management. And tour management's kind of funny because it's very like feast or famine. When your artists are touring, there's plenty of money. When they're not on the road, there's much less. So I would tutor for extra money uh, when my artists weren't on the road. Um, so I'd have these really strange Los Angeles days where I'd like run from, you know, a recording session somewhere in West Hollywood uh, up into the hills to like teach a first grader how to read. And I was sort of in my like mid to late 20s and kind of just had this realization of, wow, this part of my day with, you know, the cool rapper in the studio uh, that's supposed to make me feel really important and whatever feels kind of hollow. And this experience I'm having with this first grader teaching him how to read is like the best part of my day. Um, so I just did a complete 180. Um, and uh, yeah, I got involved with Carney Sando, sent, sent some applications out, uh, started working at a boarding school in Arizona, um, a school in the absolute middle of nowhere, exact opposite of Los Angeles. Um, and I have just like never looked back. It was just what I needed at the time was just do the exact opposite of what I was doing. And what's your um, what's your specialty subject? I am an English teacher, um, and then sort of halfway through my teaching career, became a debate coach and debate teacher. Um, so those things are there's some overlap there, but I would say primarily English teacher. Okay, fantastic. And so, fast forward then to today. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's your role in education today? Yeah, so this is my first year not teaching students in the last decade or so. Um, I now teach adults. I teach teachers. I do professional development. Um, so I, you know, fast forward a little bit, was teaching for years, um, and then got my master's degree in private school leadership from Teachers College in New York. Um, had this fantastic experience there. Didn't particularly want to be a head of school. Um, so decided to kind of branch off, created my own course of study, um, studying everything from like, you know, Python to getting my Scrum Master certification to, you know, going to the Conversation Design Institute and building chatbots and, and just trying to learn as much about tech as I could. And now I'm sort of at the nexus of learning science and uh, tech and specifically sort of generative AI. So I'm, I see myself as kind of like the connective tissue between two worlds that, um, you know, maybe sometimes have a hard time understanding one another. That is a fantastic, a fantastic way to describe yourself there, connective tissue. Um, so with this new role you've got, what does a typical day, like, can you describe for us like a typical day for you? Yeah. So it's, um, yeah, I, I got certified in tech sales as well, just to understand that role. And what I do now is in some ways, like most analogous to that kind of workflow where I'm doing uh, sort of new client prospecting and qualification of new clients. Um, so like that's the kind of um, sequence that is most analogous to what I do. But, you know, um, just earlier this month, I had a 48-hour period where I was like at schools in uh, North Carolina and then ran to Palo Alto the next day to work with schools there. So I'm, I'm trying to get into schools as much as possible um, I think next week I'm presenting back at Columbia for their heads fellowship. Um, so there, there kind of is no typical day. I'll, I'll be 
you know, working, um, I have a small team of automators. So we're working with schools to automate some of their back office practices or um, meeting with new clients or um, creating materials for a deck that I'm going to present uh, at a school. It, it's, uh, it's a little bit of everything. How have you found, obviously, for someone who's transitioned from working with children to then working with teachers, mm. uh, have you found that? It's so much harder. <laughs> it's so much harder. <laughs> you, would, you would think it would be easier, um, but it's just not. I mean, I think part of the problem is that when you walk into a school to talk about generative AI, um, and even if you do it the way I do, which is to focus on the safety and the ethics and authentic assessment, and you're not trying to convince people to use AI, you're really just there to kind of get everybody on the same page and to talk a little bit about some basic concepts, people kind of see you and they project a lot of their feelings about AI onto you. And teachers are, I mean, they're, they're just still reeling. I mean, we're still in this kind of post-pandemic state where they've got a lot of change fatigue. There's a lot of backlash against tech. Um, you know, I, I saw some poll that said something like 30% of teachers are saying today that they're basically just vowing they will never use generative AI. They're already kind of dug in. Um, so, I walk into some of these rooms and before I've said a word, there's like, you know, 10% of the faculty has decided that they do not want me there. Um, and, and that's, uh, you know, I, I sort of knew it intellectually coming in that uh, it was going to be a tiny bit rough and a little bit emotionally charged, but it was more emotional than I had expected. Um, and so teachers can be a little tough. Um, they can also be great. It, it's, it's a really wide spectrum. Um, but this is a tough emotional subject, uh, surprisingly so. Yeah, very surprising. Why do you think that is? Why do you think there's a, this this kind of high degree of reluctancy, isn't there? Yeah, I heard, I watched this great uh, TED Talk with uh, Taylor Harrell, I think I'm pronouncing her last name right. She's um, uh, a PhD out of San Diego State, and she, her focus is on change, um, le change leadership and change management. And she had this great quote where she says... Um, People don't fear change. They fear the loss that they worry will accompany that change. So I think, you know, school leaders can sometimes get into this trap of like, oh, people are just scared of change. Well, it's like, you know, we just had New Year's. People do New Year's resolutions. They embrace change when they think it's going to benefit them. So clearly people can get excited about change. But I think what's happening with schools right now and with teachers is that there's a fear of loss, a loss of autonomy, of freedom, a sense of competency. Um, and they're, they're, that, that's wrapped up with their fear of AI. I don't think it's fear of AI just because of fear of AI. Um, I think the second piece, too, is that you know, having gone through the pandemic and, and kind of heard the sometimes um, you know, overblown promises of ed tech um, and the very quick onboarding that a lot of teachers had to do, there's just a sense that ed tech has you know, not lived up to many of its promises. Um, and that this is just another iteration of that. Um, yeah. And there's, they just don't have the bandwidth for it. So I think there are a bunch of components. Yeah. I, I really, I was looking at something talking about people's like, educators priorities, mm -hmm. you know, in, in terms of teachers with busy days, the, the learning to do this is not the priority. They don't have the time to do it. And as well as that, I mean, you're probably one of a few, but there aren't skilled, knowledgeable trainers mm. out there. And like from our side, and this is interesting from you, but from our side in, in schools, most of the professional development leads are teachers within the school. Mm -hmm. And therefore, if they're not 
experts or knowledgeable about utilizing it. Schools aren't going to get, teachers aren't going to get shown it. And who externally are you going to bring in? And mm. and so obviously now there's there is a niche in the market. Obviously you've uh, you've you've caught on to that as well. Yeah. Um, do you find it though for you, obviously moving from state to state, is there a difference? Like I'm always fascinated by an American education mm. system because it's something I know nothing about. Like, is there a big difference as you travel around? <sighs> I might not have a big enough sample size quite yet. I will say, though, that um, something I found that's kind of surprising, or maybe not surprising, um, I'll let you be the judge, is that um, really top-tier schools, like the the flash schools that everyone knows in the United States, especially in the independent school world, um, have been better on this issue. So it kind of gives me the sense that like they're not the best for no reason. Um, that like, I'll give you an example, which was, um, over the summer, last summer I was doing, um, a like natural language processing Python project, um, doing sentiment analysis on student reviews of Phillips Exeter. Um, so like, uh, you know, one of the best schools in the United States. Um, and I reached out to them with the data I'd collected, um, to show them how student sentiment had shifted over, over a 10 year period and to do some of the, and show them kind of just what I'd learned. Um, and I kind of thought in reaching out to them that they would say like, who the hell are you? Like, what, like, what is this? (laughs) Like, we don't know you. We don't want to know about this. They were so interested. They set up multiple meetings with me. They wanted to know exactly how this had worked. They asked me if I would talk to their computer science kids about how I'd done the project. And I just thought, man, there is this kind of, you know, and that's anecdotal, but a kind of openness um, to change and a a readiness for change. Um, I'll say, too, that, you know, schools who have been thinking about authentic assessment for years are way better prepared to deal with AI. Because the fact is that if you have a very narrow definition of assessment um, and you only think about assessment as a single product, like a single test or a single essay, um, AI is a big threat. But if you already have a broad sense of what assessment can be, the medium and mode through which a student can demonstrate learning, um, and you're already thinking about learning as a process and not just a single product, then AI is much less of a threat and it's much more exciting. Um, So schools that have a common understanding of pedagogy and learning science are way better positioned for this. Um, Even if they just are already doing project-based learning or sort of inquiry-based learning, they're better positioned. Um, and I see that even within departments, like um, I've noticed consistently that foreign language departments are some of the best advocates for AI within schools, precisely because they do so much authentic assessment. So I guess what I'm seeing is not so much a difference between states as a difference between kind of top tier schools that have taken learning science seriously for a long time are have the toolkit to deal with us. And schools that have not done that work are feeling like uh, a little shaky about this. Are you, what's the general feeling around obviously in America? Like a lot of people I talk to, and again, maybe it's more from a British education system, mm-hmm. but are really driving or, or trying to trying to make this paradigm shift in terms of how we assess mm-hmm. uh, and go to more project based, inquiry based, skills based to some extent, and, and deviate away from a traditional norm as it were are you, are you guys getting that in america as well oh yeah i mean that's huge um you know i think 
you might get different definitions of authentic assessment from different people, but, and, you know, uh, Grant Wiggins is really good on this. Like there are a few thinkers that have, you know, written, um, well on the subject, but to me, it's, you know, it's a, a number of components. So it's, you know, effective feedback, uh, formative feedback that allows students to use their feedback to guide future performance. It's the autonomy and agency to decide for yourself what the best medium and mode is uh, through which you will demonstrate your, your learning. It's having space to discuss what the meaning of your work was, um, to relate the content or skills to what you're naturally curious about or to problems you genuinely want to solve. And then I think it also takes its cues from project-based learning in the sense that it is inherently outward looking. So students are thinking, okay, we have this knowledge, we have this set of skills, how can we leverage it to address a real world issue or a real world problem? Um, that's how work becomes meaningful. And the reason I think AI has made this so much more necessary is that AI can replicate learning if learning is a product, but it has a much harder time with process because process tends to be collaborative and outward looking and all this. Um, and the second piece is that, you know, a lot of schools are thinking about AI within the lens of academic integrity and students are less likely to cheat or to want to cheat if they find their work meaningful. So it was always necessary to make this pivot toward authentic assessment, but I feel like AI has just made it doubly necessary and really compounded the need to make this move. Yeah, I completely agree with there's all this talk about, oh, is it plagiarism or is it how's it going to be used for cheating? What's going to happen with coursework as we move through into the future? Yeah. Um, but most of the time, I think it's, you know, we're beyond those conversations now and, and there's, there's excuses to do. Yeah. Um, so looking then at, in, in terms of what you do, and here's an interesting one. So you go in obviously to schools and you're, you're working, you're, you're training teachers about obviously ethical uses of AI yeah. and other components to it. Do you find that for you, does technology play a role there for in what you do? Are you utilizing AI in itself to help deliver these sessions? Yeah, 100%. So um, I'll give you just like two concrete examples of that. So one of them is, um, if you go to enough schools, you learn kind of like what the common questions are. So I created a bot on VoiceFlow. Um, I really like VoiceFlow as a platform for creating bots. Um, with just like a custom knowledge base of like question and answer, uh, most the most common questions I get at schools, um, just sort of like retrieval augmented generation bot. Um, so I put up a QR code at my presentations and just say, you know, listen, we only have X amount of time for a Q&A, but if you d don't get your question answered or we don't have time to get to it, uh, this is a bot that you can interact with that has answers to these common questions. So you can kind of supercharge your own presentation and give them a use case um, that's, that's useful. I think the other one is, um, you know, just getting teachers... Uh, to use, I use Amanda Bickerstaff. She has a great prompt for authentic assessment that basically just, you know, it asks teachers, hey, you know, uh, tell the, the large language model, you're teaching this, this is your audience, they're 11th graders, whatever. Uh, give me 10 authentic assessment ideas. Um, so just teaching user or teaching teachers how to prompt a large language model to do that ideation, that lesson planning, uh, specifically around authentic assessment. Um, and I show them to a bot that can do like formative essay feedback that's like rubric referenced. Um, you know, I, I tell them obviously that bots shouldn't be doing grading or anything that's summative, but I make the case for bots being able to do kind of like low stakes formative feedback. So I, I show them some of those use cases. I think hands-on 
Uh, learning is where the magic happens. It's where the fear goes away. Um, it's where they're able to most readily apply the knowledge to their own practice um, and see the benefits of using it. But I'm really careful about not like evangelizing AI or you know making it really clear to them that I'm not here to convince them they should be using AI in their classroom every day. Um, you know, we're not doing a deep dive on computer science. Um, I think if you tell teachers like, hey, the world is changing and you need to keep up, like that is the absolute worst possible thing you can say. Um, but if it's, you know, we need to make sure our students are prepared um, and we need to rethink assessment. And guess what? AI can actually help us rethink assessment. It can be a partner in that transition. The teachers are, you know, a little more open to that line of, of thinking. So uh, that's what I tend to do. Yeah, I found that uh, there's a post today actually about this and about obviously how do we get teachers to change within schools. Yeah, And uh, I think I'd made the comment in terms of I completely ignore teachers and went straight for the students. Mm. Uh, because if you start working with students and showing them, then all of a sudden they start going to their other lessons, they start talking, they start wanting to, to utilize and do. So, you know, it's, it's an interesting one in terms of where we approach it. But from there, you mentioned voice flow. Yeah. Um, and, and obviously you've been very, very clear in terms of talking about AI. A lot of teachers or people, when they talk about AI, just go straight to chat GPT and they mm -hmm. think that's the only thing that's there. Yeah. Like what are, when you're going into schools, what are the types of platforms and AI systems that you're kind of showcasing and recommending for teachers to use? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a fan of perplexity in size space um, because I like that element of explainability, the citations, um, you know, being trained on a smaller training set of like academic journals and research uh, papers and things like that. I think that's um, a good start for sort of addressing the issues around hallucinations and objectivity <clears throat> and explainability, like being able to cite a source. Um, it's also good because I think a lot of people who teach STEM want to be able to assign like high level, um, you know, research papers and things, but they're doing it to an audience of students who aren't at that level. So being able to query a PDF directly and ask questions or to transform knowledge into, you know, Hey, can you tell me this or explain this concept to me? Like I'm in seventh grade. That's, that's really useful. Um, I would say though, and, and I think they're like, there's, there's some, benefit to showing them some some other AI tools that are just kind of fun, like, hey, this one can make music, this one can create images, this one does 3D renderings and letting them play. Um, but I think for the most part, you'd be surprised a lot of them have never logged on to ChatGPT, or they logged on once, went, meh, it's okay, and never logged on again. <laughs> you know, for people like us, it's it's more like, yeah, hey, you know, uh, aliens landed on Earth. Uh, like their spaceship came <laughs> down and landed. And we were talking to people who are just like, yeah, I don't know. I'll check it out later. And you're like, really? Because aliens have landed on Earth and you're not curious about this. But for a, a huge segment of, of the teaching population, it's just, it's kind of like, yeah, I don't know. I checked it out once or I'm not really that interested or I don't see the benefit. So even just giving them that baseline, that foundation of this is how you can prompt a large language model to do something that will actually help you in your classroom um, is great. But again, the, the prerequisite for that, I think, really is going over the safety and ethics. Um, and the prerequisite for that is giving them some foundational knowledge of how these systems are trained. Because it's a lot easier to understand the ethical and safety challenges if you understand something about what a large language model is. So that's, that's where we start. Yeah, it feeds nicely in what we're... I think for the last kind of six months or so, this maybe even longer, the, the concept of AI literacy. Mm. And then the people got scared, not scared, probably the wrong word, but 
as soon as you mention AI, you get just certain types of reactions, don't you? So mm. you're starting to see now, or I'm starting to see now, people shift more to this concept of, look, it's just digital literacy, mm. you know, and just considering AI as another digital resource, uh, an extension, as it were, in terms of what we can do to enhance uh, opportunities, in, enhance capabilities, enhance you know, learning to some extent with that. Yeah. So, as a professional, yeah. Like, how do you to con- how do you to continue to develop professionally? Then, as someone still involved in, in a, as an educator, but obviously now, obviously educating teachers who yeah. are notoriously difficult to educate. We both know. Yeah. yeah so, um, I, I don't. It's funny. Like, I probably spend an embarrassing amount of time, maybe as much as like two hours a day, on YouTube watching um just different videos on different subjects that i'm interested in at that particular moment so um you know right now a lot of my work is on automation so we're we're automating sort of back office tasks in you know it could be the advancement department or alumni relations or admissions or hr um but i'm getting a lot of traction so i'm watching youtube videos uh from these people who've set up automation consultancies and are offering like their best practices um i'm setting up interviews uh with interesting people like informational interviews and podcast interviews to try to learn um like i'm on linkedin quite a bit just reading interesting posts reading articles um i mean you know teachers are i think naturally autodidacts um, it's very often the case that we are just a week or two ahead of our kids scrambling to learn all the stuff that we're about to present to them and teach them. So I love continually flexing that muscle. And, um, you know, so a lot of it does end up in the presentations that I end up giving. So I'm on Canva a lot too, just kind of creating those presentation decks. And, you know, teachers know this, that nothing makes you learn something better than having to then teach it. Um, like if you have to be the most prepared person in the room as a teacher. So this thing of, you know, oh, I not only have to know this, but I have to be able to communicate this to an audience of teachers or an audience of, you know, heads of school or, or whomever, um, that really kind of keeps me on my toes. So it's, it's great. Um, but I honestly, I think I don't hear people talk about this a lot, but man, I'm on YouTube all the time. That is my favorite way to gain knowledge is just like, two hours a day, probably I'm in the gym, just listening to podcast episodes or YouTube videos, explainers about some new tech tool, some, you know, um, business concept, whatever it is I need. Um, it's very much like, you know, Neo in the chair, downloading Kung Fu into his brain. Uh, that's, that's, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm very much along the same, uh, same line of learning as, as the way you approach it. So I can empathize with that. It reminds me of, um, um, you know, the, the three hour lecture about the dangers of overloading cognitive load, you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love, I always remember those ones. Um, so as we go to close, my last question for you then, Evan, yeah. is based on your experiences, what would be one change you'd like to see in the global education landscape? Mm. Um, you know, I think if I had to narrow it down to just one, um, I would probably get back on my soapbox about rethinking assessment. Um, just because it's it's good pedagogy. We've known uh, how to do this for some time now. Um, and AI has made it really necessary that we do it. Um, you know, I, I was I was thinking a little bit today about kind of the state of AI in ed tech and the move toward um, like 
hyper-personalized AI tutors and the sort of Salcon uh, wave. Um, and there may be real promise in that. So I guess maybe my second thing would be, um, I don't know, a, a tiny bit of hesitancy about that um, because I think that's that's sort of the soup du jour right now. That's what it feels like a lot of people are talking about. You know, for a while, everyone's talking about like gamifying learning. Now everybody's talking about like hyper-personalized tutors. So I would also, maybe as my second thing, kind of, um, I don't know, just throw some a tiny bit of cold water on that. Um, because, you know, post-pandemic, teachers and learners are really feeling like, you know, learning should be this collaborative, social, emotional, kinetic thing. Um, and that we we know what it's like to be in silos. Um, so in as much as hyper-personalized tutors might be great for a student that doesn't have access to high-quality education, I just kind of worry about a world where we're all in silos again. Um, there might be some narrow use cases for that, but um, I don't know. Like I, I just think that there's not a lot of appetite for um, kind of going off into our separate corners at this moment. It feels like the wave is, is much more toward... A more collaborative, more kinetic, more emotionally connected learning environment. Evan, thank you so much for joining me on the Teacher Talk segment. It's been it's been really really insightful and uh, very interesting. So thanks ever so much. For yeah, that. thanks, man. This was great. Thanks for having me on.